Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Sociology podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am blessed and honored to be in dialogue with Stephanie Southworth and Sarah Brailier. We'll be discussing their newly published book, Homelessness in the 21st Century, Living the Impossible American Dream, published in New York by Routledge 2023. Stephanie Southworth is Associate Professor of Sociology at Coastal Carolina University. Sarah Brillier is Professor of Sociology at Coastal Carolina University. Thank you so much for your kindness in participating today. It's an honor to be here. Our pleasure. Uh, To begin, can you tell us a bit about yourselves? Um, How did you become interested in this subject matter? Where does it come from in your personal life experience and lived experiences? Sure. This is Sarah. Hi. I had a very middle-class suburban upcoming, but I've always been very concerned about food insecurity, that I've been drawn to volunteering and community kitchens and food banks. And then when Stephanie came to Coastal Carolina and joined our faculty, with her interest in people experiencing homelessness, it was really a research match made in heaven. And we had so much in common that we started involving our students in projects that involved investigating unmet needs in the homeless community. And this is Stephanie. And growing up, I never saw people that were homeless. And as I got older, I started seeing people out begging for money and walking down the street. You could tell they didn't have, you know, a place to stay. And I was really curious as to why this was happening. When I was growing up, I never saw anybody outside. So one of one of the projects I started on when I came to Coastal Carolina University is that I wanted to interview people that were experiencing homelessness to see, you know, why this was occurring, how we could help, there's anything we could do. I got together with Sarah and we started this project seven years ago and it hasn't ended yet. Can you summarize your book for us? What are your core findings? What stories does your book tell? What are the key themes in the book? The aim of our research was really at first to identify gaps in services provided to people experiencing homelessness in Myrtle Beach and the surrounding county. And what we found is that people are really facing structural barriers to becoming housed. That this is not an individual level problem. This is very much a societal social problem in which folks do not have access to affordable housing, living wage jobs, effective mental and physical health care, transportation. They are interacting with the criminal justice system in a way that can either cause homelessness or prolong it. How did you conduct your interviews? How did you meet your interviewees? How did you go about maintaining confidentiality? What steps did you take to earn the trust of your interviewees 
as they opened up to you? Well, we began the project interviewing residents of a men's shelter in Myrtle Beach. We, at the time, we had an excellent student assistant, a veteran who did a fantastic job of connecting with the men living in the shelter. In the beginning, he was recruiting respondents for us. But as our project continued, we became well-known and respected of the shelter, and we had no trouble recruiting people to participate. In fact, lots of folks volunteered to be interviewed, sometimes more than once. And one of the things that we've experienced throughout this project is that our respondents have expressed gratitude for being invited to participate in the interview. Recently, Tom told us, I like these meetings where we can advocate for ourselves and say anything. I don't care what you say. You can't understand unless you've been through these situations. If you haven't experienced it, you have to go through it or you aren't going to realize it. You can tell your story to anybody you want to, but if you ain't been through it, they ain't going to understand your story. This right here is what we're talking about. This is testimony. These things we are going through now and how people overlook the homeless. And of course, we protect our respondents' identities. Tom is a pseudonym. At the beginning of each interview, we let the participants know that their participation is voluntary and we promise to keep all answers confidential. And whenever we share our findings, we assign pseudonyms to the respondents. Also, the names of the organizations in the book are also pseudonyms. What misconceptions about homelessness and about persons experiencing homelessness does this book challenge? Why do these misconceptions exist and persist? Well, people who experience homelessness are often stigmatized and blamed for becoming homeless. The whole premise of our book is to demonstrate that homelessness is not a result of poor choices, but a result of inadequate social structure. The first question we often hear when we tell people about our work is, yeah, but don't some of them choose to become homeless? Although our book only includes information from our first 250 interviews, we've talked to almost 400 people sleeping rougher in a shelter. Of the few people who are no longer hoping to become housed, there were only two people we have spoken to who have chosen to become homeless. The rest of the very few people no longer looking for housing had been trying and failing to become housed for so long that they had given up. There are just not enough resources available. Another stereotype is that people experiencing homelessness are lazy and don't want to work. Our research strongly contradicts this. Over a third of the homeless individuals that we interviewed are employed in one or more jobs. 10% were looking for work. 43% report mental or physical ailments that prevent them from working. And at least 5% are past retirement age. The top reasons for not working are mental and physical health problems, lack of transportation, a criminal record that excluded them from most work, or lack of identification. And many of those who are working are employed in the service industry as day laborers, who are paid under the table for odd jobs. Most of those working are not paid enough to save money for an apartment of their own. A minimum wage job is insufficient to pay rent on even the least expensive apartment in Myrtle Beach. A person would have to make at least $19.50 an hour at a full-time job to afford an efficiency apartment in Myrtle Beach. Very few jobs pay that much because Myrtle Beach is a tourist economy in the winter 
It isn't easy to find a job that will offer to work 40 hours a week because it's the off season. And additionally, a person would have to pass the background check and save a deposit for the apartment. Many of the folks that we interview have income for social security, disability, or paid work, but their income is simply not enough to afford a home. Even when people make enough money, many do not qualify for housing because they have a low credit score, inconsistent work history, they don't have an ID, or they can't pass a background check. And we really think that these and other stereotypes persist because it's much easier to blame individuals for their situations than acknowledge that our economy, our mental and physical health care systems, and the criminal justice system are seriously dysfunctional and that systemic change is needed to address homelessness in a meaningful way. And that 1950, Sarah talked about, um, it's the number that the county, or a county, the county that Myrtle Beach is in, they came up with that number in 2020. Um, so they did an analysis and found that it would take somebody $19.15, 40 hours a week at a full-time year-round job to be able to afford an efficiency apartment. Um, and I'm sure that the cost of living has gone up since 2020. Can you tell us about Janelle? Can you introduce us to her? Sure. Janelle is an example of how um, homelessness can spread kind of between family members. Uh, we did a lot of our interviews at the community kitchen and Janelle was there with her father and they had just finished eating and they came out and um, to the hallway where we were sitting and they asked us, you know, what we were doing. And we asked if we could hear their story. And Janelle said, that she wasn't supposed to be homeless, that she had lived in Virginia, she had a full-time job, um, she was a professional, and she wanted us to know that. She's like, I don't live uh, on the street um, purposefully. I don't want to be here. But she came down from Virginia to Myrtle Beach to take care of her father, who had diabetes and some other health problems. Um, and he was on the verge of being homeless because his rent was increased. Um, he was trying to apply for disability um, benefits and was having trouble with the paperwork. So she quit her job, came down to Myrtle Beach to help him out. And, you know, before the, and she also thought that it would be really easy to get a job in Myrtle Beach because there's a lot of jobs, supposedly. Um, she got down here. She couldn't find a job. Her dad had not gotten his disability benefits, and so they were just out of money. Um, they ended up being evicted. They were sleeping in his car when we talked to him, them. And um, Janelle was like, and we were, this was during COVID, so we were asking them about whether or not they had vac been vaccinated. Um, and the dad said, Yes, I was, and I made her get vaccinated too. And so Janelle was like, yeah, I probably wouldn't now if it wasn't for my dad. And so they were like sharing this experience and influencing each other, even though neither of them had expected to ever end up being homeless. Um, so she's just a really good example of how, you know, one family member can affect another one that, you know, Janelle was trying to help her father and ended up with both of them in a, a worse place and through really no fault of their own other than the choice um, that she made 
I'm the Myrtle Beach, but I don't necessarily think she was wrong in making the assumption that there would be a professional child here for her. Um, it was just a series of very bad circumstances for her. Can you contextualize federal policies such as the 1963 Community Health Care Act and President Reagan's Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1981, as well as the 1987 McKinney-Vento Homeless Assistance Act? What sure. were the repercussions of these different policies? Sure. Um, first, we need a little bit of context. Um, during the Great Depression, there was a significant increase in the number of people that were unable to stay housed. Um, all of a sudden, all these makeshift campsites started popping up all around the United States. They were called Uberville's, named after President Uber. Um, there were people that, you know, were traveling from place to place, trying to find work, um, trying to, you know, get enough resources to feed their children. Um, the Roosevelt administration um, tried to, you know, get rid of slums, create jobs, provide housing. Um, and But before this, the government hadn't really played any part in housing citizens. But Roosevelt kind of said, well, this is what we have to do if we want to get back on track. Um, so it's new deal policies, put people back to work, um, created 40,000 low-income housing units, um, started a program called the Federal Transit Service that created shelters across the country and provided job training, vouchers for boarding houses, and to low-income citizens. Um, this is also when the Federal Housing Administration was created. And if you don't know, the Federal Housing Administration backs uh, home loans um, so that mortgage, mortgage, mortgage ah, companies are not taking as big a risk when they lend to people. Um, the Social Security Act reduced poverty for people over 65. Um, and aid to families with dependent children, helped mothers um, support their children, um, and some men. There were some problems with these policies. We won't get into them there, but the, the point for this is that dramatic uh, homelessness decreased dramatically. And the uh, presidential administrations that followed Roosevelt, you know, they kind of uh, bought into this common good theme and they believe that you know we needed government to help people sometimes um the 1963 mental health care act was signed by president kennedy and tried to remove uh people from the state-run psychiatric institutions um in the 1960s we didn't need the government as much to help people with you know, their psychiatric health because we had all sorts of medications and other therapies that could help people instead. Um, most of the people that were living in asylums could be productive citizens by taking prescriptions and living at home, living at home. Um, so this act provided funding for community centers so people didn't have to, you know, be boarded at these asylums. They could just go to these community centers um, but 
one problem with this is it was never adequately funded or supported. Um, and people immediately kind of started having problems accessing um, these community centers. And when President Reagan and his omnibus legislation from 1981 and 1982 came into play, um, you know, what all the progress from the 40s to the 60s that had been made kind of went backwards. Um, in 1981 and 1982, these acts flashed the funding for affordable housing, flashed the funding for these community centers that were supposed to help people with their mental health, um, cut school lunch program funding, psychiatric care, welfare. Um, and he justified this belt tightening by saying that, you know, anybody that was in welfare was a welfare queen. They were taking advantage of the system. He promoted the idea that homelessness is a choice and that people were too lazy to work. But what people didn't realize is that in the first four years of his administration and with these cuts, homelessness skyrocketed. Um, there, when he, Reagan took office, there were 250,000 people that were homeless. And in the first four years, um, there ended up being 500,000 people that were homeless. Um, so then they had to create another act to deal with the new situation. And that was where the Vento Act came into play that put shelters or funded shelters all over the country for people that were homeless. So um, rather than keeping people from being homeless, the, the actions of President Reagan actually increased homelessness and, and decreased the aid available to people for mental health care. Um, and this act, the McKinney Mental Act, has been reauthorized every year since um, 1981. What is the nonprofit industrial complex? Can you explain this term and the phenomena that it illuminates? Sure. So the McKinney-Vento Act was necessary at the time, um, but it had unintended consequences. It actually was act was a big part of creating the nonprofit industrial complex. The nonprofit industrial complex goes like this. Instead of the federal government giving people or um, institutions money, they give the money to states, which then hire people to disperse it. And then the states give it to nonprofits, and then it gets to people in some way or another. And so along the way, all sorts of administrators have to be hired to deal with this federal money. Um, so states will often create competitive grants to this vast network of nonprofits that have arisen since the McKinney-Vental Act was passed. Nonprofit organizations then need to hire people to submit grant applications. All this dilutes the money that's actually available to help people. Once the nonprofit gets the money, they need to show that they're, they're helping just enough people so that they can get more money. So there's really no incentive to help or solve the problem of homelessness because so many people now along the way depend on homelessness for their income. They're offered to people working within this vast network of nonprofits. 
if the government just gave money or resources to people automatically or individually, there'd be a huge incentive to end homelessness because then the federal government or the state government would have money to spend elsewhere. Uh, but as it is, there's so many of these nonprofits and governmental organizations that depend on homelessness to stay in, the bit, in business. There's no reason to stop it. There's no reason to end homelessness. And we've seen that homelessness has really not significantly changed since the 1980s. Can you tell us about Tanner? Who is Tanner? Why is Tanner's story revelatory? Tanner, um, once again, is somebody that didn't expect to become homeless. He had a series of setbacks and trauma in a very short amount of time that really um, not only hurt his physical health, but his mental health and um, just kept him from being roused. He was working in an asphalt company where we met him, Tinger. Um, was in his 20s and, you know, hardworking guy. And he tore his labrum in his shoulder or arm. And he lost his job because he couldn't, you know, sling asphalt with the torn labrum. Um, so his arm was messed up, his shoulder was messed up. And when he ran out of money, he went to Springhouse, which is the name that we call the homeless shelter. And he was really happy that they let him in at all because they're typically full. Um, shortly after he started staying there, he was assaulted bad enough that he ended up in the hospital. Um, and when we talked to him, he had just gotten out of the hospital about a week before, and he just didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't have any income. He was, you know, kind of broken up because of the corn labrum and its assaults. And we said, well, you know, you need to go back to the doctor. You, you need to follow up. And he's like, I don't trust doctors. I, I'm not, I'm not going and I said, what, what do you do like to, to ease your pain? And he said he drinks a bottle of NyQuil every night to go to sleep. Um, so, you know, he was very proud of himself because he doesn't take illegal drugs, but yet he was self-medicating with NyQuil. Um, his medical, he's one of these people that his medical condition likes to him being homeless, but it's also keeping him from being housed because the only jobs he's ever done his manual labor jobs and he just like all we talked to him you know he had been out of work a couple months he still couldn't really do any kind of manual labor so he was just kind of in the shelter trying to wait for his body to heal so that he could hopefully get a job and then get an apartment again but you know once somebody becomes homeless it's very difficult to save enough money to get you know get a job where they can save enough money to get housing again, especially with the high costs of rent right now. What services are available to people experiencing homelessness in Myrtle Beach? Are they adequate? Well, in Myrtle Beach, one organization is responsible for the men's, women's, and family shelters. And all three shelters align with a high-barrier transitional housing model rather than a traditional emergency shelter. And the residents tell us the shelter charged them rent and required them to take part in shelter-led programming. 
In our county, domestic, domestic violence victims are considered too risky, and the shelter staff often said women experiencing domestic violence to a shelter in the next county. The shelter system has beds for nearly 200 men, women, and children, which is far fewer than needed. In Springhouse, residents are required to earn their way to housing. The barriers to entry in Springhouse um, are very high. One city employee told us that the barriers are higher than any other shelter they've ever seen. It has an early curfew, and they regularly bring police with dogs in to assure that there are no drugs in the building. Men's Shelter recently has added an emergency stay component where 22 men without a place to sleep can enter at 8 p.m., but they are required to leave at 6 a.m. And the people who want to stay overnight at the men's shelter must stand across the street until 8 o'clock p.m., and then they are allowed on the property. The time's not adjusted even when the weather is bad. So about 8 o'clock, the people who want to roof over their heads go across the street to the shelter's door. Um, in regards to food, Myrtle Beach has a public kitchen for anyone who wants a hot breakfast or lunch Monday through Friday. We recall at the neighborhood kitchen, and their clientele are primarily people who are experiencing homelessness, but anyone is welcome to stop and enjoy a freshly cooked meal. And they serve about 8,000 meals a year. People experiencing homelessness in Myrtle Beach can receive physical and mental health care from Big Lake Medical Center, which is a pseudonym. They provide services and referrals for physical and mental health care and they run a mobile dental unit. Their healthcare and dental services are often, they're offered on a sliding pay scale and they pride themselves in not refusing service to anyone who cannot pay. They also have a group that travels around giving vaccinations and testing people for HIV. Betty Lake makes appointments for people to see mental healthcare providers and they serve almost 3,000 homeless patients a year. Most common conditions that they see are depression and mood disorder. They also saw a substantial percent of people with high blood pressure, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, diabetes, and HIV and AIDS. Despite the prevalent stereotypes about the late homelessness and addiction, only about 7% of the people they treated reported alcohol and drug-related disorder. For folks who need clothes, we have an excellent community closet where low-income people we go for clothes once a week. When we began this study, we were under the impression that clothing would be problematic for people experiencing homelessness. But even in our first round of interviews, we quickly realized that wasn't true. Whenever we asked about finding clothing, folks would tell us that they had plenty of clothes. We asked one fellow on the street and he said, no, ma'am, I have plenty. When these clothes get dirty, I give them away and get more showed us his backpack and said, I have another I have another set of clothes in here in case I need that. And so the most of the folks that we spoke to who were on shelter did not have a problem finding clean clothes to wear. Some of the organizations in our county were created to, that were created to meet the needs of individuals experiencing homelessness are adequate. For example, over 90% of the people we interviewed can obtain food when they're hungry, and 78% can obtain clothing. So this data suggests that the public kitchens and community closets are most are meeting the most basic needs of the homeless community. And other organizations like Big Lake do a terrific job at what they do. 
but their services are limited. Only 34% of our sale had used big rate. And of the people that use their services, 90% felt that they received good care. Many others rely on emergency rooms for health care. And although many of the individuals in coaching feel like they can get some mental health care, the treatment they receive can be like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. The hospitals treat the acute problem and then releases the person. It doesn't treat the underlying problems of the individual or the structural problems that create the mental health crises. And then there is a third group of nonprofits in the area to meet the growing need for their services, whether that are unable to meet the growing need, whether it's due to lack of effort or insufficient resources. For example, there is simply not enough affordable housing for everyone who needs it. What are the different worldviews and ideologies and philosophies of how to quote unquote deal with homelessness? How do these play out in Myrtle Beach? Um, Myrtle Beach decided um, a few years ago, seven or eight years ago, that they needed to have or they wanted to have one organization that um, was in charge of the men's, women's, and families homeless shelter. And when they created this nonprofit, they brought in this guy named Robert Lufton to talk about his um, view of how we should deal with people that are experiencing homelessness. And so he came in and he, he was talked to the city officials and the mayor and the people that were about to open up this nonprofit and about its philosophy of toxic charity. And toxic charity is this idea that if you don't ask people to do something for whatever you're giving them, then they'll just sit there and have their hand out. Um, that charity in itself is toxic um, and you shouldn't just give people something for nothing. So in that in the 18 and early 1900s, they had um, poor houses where people had to, you know, men had to break bricks and women had to cook and clean in order to pay for their bed. So when we first started interviewing people, we were kind of surprised that we were in the men's shelter and we were kind of surprised that um, like there was a, a client answering the phones. There was somebody that was um, doing the laundry. Other people worked in the kitchen um, and we couldn't figure out why they had the people they were trying to help working in all these jobs. And we realized that they started this shelter system with this kind of toxic charity model in mind. And so when we, our first set of interviews, you know, we pulled the shelter officials like, you know, we can help you with some of these things. Like there were people were sleeping on the concrete floor and we said, you know, we can get you mats and then they won't have to sleep on the floor. And the director told us that they want them to sleep on the concrete because maybe then they'll get up and get a job. Um, and that they have mats, but the mats are upstairs. They'll just ruin them if, if they give them mats to sleep on. So the whole premise of the way that people are sheltered in Myrtle Beach is this idea of toxic charity and that they try to make people work. And if they don't have a job in the shelter, then they have to pay like rent in the shelter. So 
it's really contrary to anything a sociologist would think um, should be done, but that's how they've been running their shelter system. Who is Amelia? Can you tell us about Amelia? What does Amelia's experience teach us? Amelia is a what an interesting character. She was very thin. She was very frail looking. She was in her 60s, um, but she looked much older. You know, you could tell she had, had some life. Um, but when we started talking to her, she really, she had really an interesting life. She had only um, gotten a fourth grade education, but she had traveled all around the world with her her first husband was in the military. And then when he passed away, she um, became addicted to drugs. Um, I don't, I'm not sure which drugs, but she just said she was addicted to drugs. Um, but then when she met her second husband, who was also in the military, he sent her to rehab. She got clean um, and went around traveling the world again with her second military husband. But when we met her, she had just lost her second husband and her son within a very short period of time and had relapsed and started using drugs again and was in a homeless shelter for the first time ever in her life. And she was 64. Um, she was said she was trying to uh, stay there until she could sober up. She couldn't work if she was using drugs. Um, when we asked her how her health was, she's like, oh, probably eight, nine out of 10, something like that. I'm good. So even though she presented as being very weak and very frail, um, and she was uh, trying not to use drugs anymore, she really had a kind of an optimistic view of her health. Um, and Amelia's kind of case study shows us two things. The first thing is, you know, anything can change, a mental, you know, a death, a setback. Um, you know, she was 64 and this was the first time in a homeless shelter. But also it shows kind of the resiliency of the people that we talked to. Um, you know, she was very optimistic. She had lost a lot, but she was still like when we asked her where she'd be in five years, she was going to be, you know, working at somewhere, some store, and, you know, doing real good. She'll have a house of her own, and everything would be okay. You know, she was very optimistic, despite, you know, all the trauma that she had been through previously in her life. What does your research teach us about access to transportation among persons experiencing homelessness? Transportation is very difficult, um, especially where we are, there's very little in the way of public transportation. There is a bus that kind of goes in a T um, formation next to the beach and then out from the beach. Um, when we first started conducting interviews, we would ask people, you know, what's your biggest need right now? And they would say transportation. Um, I remember one guy said, you know, I really want to get a job and if I walk to work, you know, Myrtle Beach is hot and it's humid 60% of the year or more. Um, he said, you know, when I walk to a job interview, by the time I get there, I'm hot and sweaty. Nobody's going to hire me. And then when they find out I, I live at a homeless shelter, 
Um, they're really not. Um, so transportation is huge, huge deal, especially affordable transportation. Um, during COVID, the bus system that doesn't go very far, but it does, you know, pick people in certain areas, they made their bus system free. And when they did that, we stopped hearing people say transportation was the biggest obstacle. So transportation is immensely important for, for low-income people, whether they're housed or not. Can you explain what you mean by the quote-unquote crime of homelessness? Can you describe what this means? Sure. Um, although homelessness itself is not a crime, most every human behavior that you can do outside is a or If you're doing it outside and you're homeless, it becomes a crime. Um, in Myrtle Beach, you literally can't sit, stand, sleep, use the bathroom. Just about any human behavior Um if you're homeless without uh, risk of getting arrested. Um, the bathrooms, the public bathrooms close at dark um, and they lock them. So if you are home out living outside and you use the bathroom, there's nowhere, um, there's nowhere that you could go that's legal. The public parks all close at six o'clock um, or at dark, one or the other. So it's illegal to walk in the park if you are homeless, um, you cannot sit under a pier uh, on the beach. Um, there's no loitering signs everywhere. So um, the city is spending a lot of money ticketing and arresting people for, you know, sleeping, standing, sitting. They're taking people back and forth to the jail. Um, they're arresting people for walking through a park if it's after hours. Um, it, it is really kind of not very good for people or for the economy because taxpayers are paying for all these rides to the jail for the folks that are living outside. Um, some there has been there have been a few court cases that found that arresting somebody from for Things like sitting, standing, or sleeping um, is against the right, the constitutional right to travel. It's against the 14th Amendment. Um, it, it is really kind of crazy um, how many things are illegal if you do it outside. Can you tell us about silence? Why is silence significant? Can you tell us about silence in regard to the themes that your research develops? Sure. And Silence was, uh, he was a character. We met him at the community kitchen as well. And um, we asked, we started asking people about halfway through our research, we started asking people about their interactions with the police, good, bad, or anything like that. And we said, hey, Silas, have you uh, had any interactions with the police? And he was like, yeah, I just got out of jail. And he was smiling. He was kind of laughing about it. And we said, why? Why'd you get out of jail? And he said, I was racing a golf cart on my bike and I got arrested. And he thought that was so funny because he, you know, this golf cart wanted to race him. And you know, they race down the boulevard or down the boardwalk 
and Silence was on his bike in this golf cart, was being driven by a tourist or somebody, and he won. And at the end, they arrested him for um, uh, disorderly conduct. They didn't arrest the person in the golf cart, but they arrested him. And if somebody had arrested me for riding a a bike against a golf cart, I probably would be mad. But I, I was glad that Silas could look at it as humorous when it's probably not a very fair situation. What can you tell us about the roles played by police as first responders to health crises that impact persons experiencing homelessness? Well, the legal and criminal justice system really are not equipped to deal with many of the problems that homeless individuals are experiencing. Yet they are often called to address these community problems that really should fall under another agency's purview. And so when communities like ours lack an established systematic response to assist people with problems associated with homelessness, the criminal justice system really does become the de facto service provider, especially with issues dealing with mental health crises. Um, we saw this when we met Frankie. Frankie is severely disabled and was sleeping rough. Uh, until recently, until right before we met him, he had been running a room in a house paying for it with his disability check. His landlord had kicked him out, and someone stole his rent money from where he stored it under his mattress. And when we met him at the public kitchen, he had been on the street for a couple of weeks and was despondent. He had told us that when he was a child, he pulled a pot of boiling water off the stove and had burned 40% of his body. Because of the childhood incident, he severely scarred. He pulled up his shorts and shirt and showed us his burn scars and said, look, I can't do anything about this. I've looked like this since I was little. He showed us the scars from where he had rods and both his legs, making one leg shorter than the other. And he started crying. He said, my boss, Brown, last week is crazy. He saved me from drowning a few weeks ago, and now he's drowned. I almost died five times, but the Lord won't take me. I want to die, but the Lord doesn't want me. And so usually when we meet folks, we give out information, pamphlets, and show individuals what agency they should call. But we were really genuinely concerned with Frankie's mental health. So we started calling around for him. And almost every place we called offered to put him on a list, but organizations were not able to do anything for him immediately. Several organizations told us that if Frankie was suicidal, we should call the police. We didn't call police. the police would not have helped Frankie. And in the end, we gave him a backpack with some hygiene items and told him to look contact to get on the list for emergency counseling. But that was all we can do. And we haven't met with him again. What does your research teach us about the quote-unquote American dream? Well, the American dream ideology posits that every person, even those born into poverty, can be successful as long with perseverance, hard work, and determination. Most people we meet experiencing homelessness believe that the American dream is a reality, can be a reality, and they blame themselves if they cannot achieve it. The American dream ideology really is problematic because it ignores the structural conditions that make homelessness a social problem. Working hard is not enough to achieve the dream if no jobs pay a living wage. 
Yet, despite the seemingly insurmountable odds, most of the folks we spoke to believe that if they just work hard enough, they will make it. They realize they're in a difficult spot, but most believe everything will be okay if they just get through this bump. They just need to be patient, work hard, and then they can have that reading. 1.8 kids, a dog, and a picket fence. Felix was an excellent example of this. We met him in an encampment in the woods where he was sleeping rough. After he showed us his tent and the fire he and his fellow campers kept burning, we asked him to tell us his story, and he had quite a story to tell. He said, I had a huge house and a parrot. I love that parrot. Then my daughter sold me out. What happened, we asked. He told us, I had four DUIs. I went to jail for three of them. After the first DUI, I lost my job. I went to jail for the second one, and my daughter sold my car. When I went in again after the third one, my daughter sold my house. The third time I went in, my daughter sold my parrot, and this was the last drop. I don't talk to her anymore. I love that parrot. He had lived in the account encampment for about a year when we spoke to him, and we asked, what are your plans for the future? He said, well, yeah, I'm going to start another business and have it all again. I'll probably even get another parrot. Um, one of the other things, even the service providers we spoke to and the public officials believed in and promoted the dream. And this is really problematic because it firmly places the responsibility for success on the individual and ignores the fact that affordable housing that people can qualify is not available in Myrtle Beach, and it's becoming more scarce both here and across the country. Many people experiencing homelessness feel if they could just get their mindset and motivation on track, they could work their way out of homelessness. With the lack of social safety nexts, affordable housing, and living wage jobs um, being ignored, really people experiencing homelessness are not being advocated by service providers are not being advocated for, and no one is really talking about the political and structural change needed to address homelessness. Can you tell us about Nash? Why is Nash significant? Can you tell us the story of Nash and Nash's lived experiences? Sure. Nash um, was only 19 years old when we met him. And when he was 17, he had, when he was 16, he had burglarized a house in his neighborhood with some friends and he had gone to jail for that burglary when he was 17. So two years later, we met him in the shelter and he, he looks really young for his age. We thought maybe that was the wrong place for him, but he was assured us that he was 19. Um, he was kind of despondent because he had a family who were still living in that neighborhood, but he wasn't allowed to go back to that neighborhood as a part of his release from jail. And his family refused to move out of that neighborhood. So he literally had nowhere to go. He had never lived on his own. Um, he was just very, very sad. And he had been staying there for a short at Spring House for a short period of time when we met him. And he's like, I don't understand why there's no help for people when they leave prison. He's like, he thought, said, like, I'm not really a criminal. I just did a bad thing. I was like, hear it. And he, he kept telling us that he learned his lesson and 
he was very um, smart in that he understood that the system is not set up to help him do well. He's like, there should be aftercare for people coming out of jails and prisons. Um, he was really at the end of his rope. And he said, they just want me to fail. They don't want us to succeed. They want all of us to fail. And now I have a record. I can't get a job. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know who to ask. Um, and unfortunately, we weren't a lot of help for him because the structural um, conditions in which people live really don't set people coming out of jail or prison or people that are homeless. Um, it's not set up for them that they, we don't have a society that, you know, lifts people up. We are a society that kind of expects people that pull themselves up regardless of, you know, pull themselves up, up by the bootstraps, regardless of whether they have boots or straps or any of that. Like, it's very difficult for people to do what society expects them to do. And, you know, Nash was 19 years old, and it was really kind of tragic how his life was not going to go well from there. What light does your research shed on the availability of affordable housing for persons experiencing homelessness? There is very little affordable housing, whether in Myrtle Beach or across the country. Um, and with all the cuts that have been in place from the 1980s through today, um, it doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon. You know, interest rates are skyrocketing. Um, our college, we work at the university, our college students are finding uh, trouble even finding apartments they can afford so that they can go to school. Um, even with, if there was affordable housing, unless there was some kind of support for people to um, have the down payment for places or to have some kind of, um, you know, aftercare or or mental or physical health care, like just having an affordable home is it not going to be enough. Um, what we should do is start, stop homelessness before it occurs. And if we had affordable housing in the first place, you could probably solve about half of the issues um, that are associated with homelessness. And you could definitely stop a lot of the chronic homelessness. Because what we find is that the people that have been homeless for a year or two or three um, have been like begging, asking for help with housing for years and years. And oftentimes they just give up because realistically, there's not enough affordable housing out there. What light does your study shed on the access to medical care and health care available to persons experiencing homelessness? When we uh, first began this study, we were really surprised by the number of people that told us that, you know, they had serious medical conditions that weren't being treated. Um, and they would say they were fine. Like, like they would say, I have a heart, I had a heart attack, a stroke, I have a plate in my head, you know, literally can't breathe. And then we ask this question about on a scale from one to 10, how healthy are you? And they're like eight, nine. And you know, it, it's really, it's almost sad how stoic people are. Um, 
there is a lot of serious mental and physical disability in the homeless community. And, you know, being stoic is oftentimes the only choice people have because, you know, there's very little, you know, Big Lake Medical Center can help, you know, with immediate needs, but for long-term care, for things like, you know, heart attacks and strokes and plates in your head or whatever, it, it is it is very difficult. Um, 97% of the people that we talk to have some kind of chronic or serious condition. Um, they've got like heart problems, high blood pressure, diabetes, back problems, um, chronic pain due to an ingest injury, anxiety, bipolar, like there's lists and lists and lists and there's just not enough resources. Um, you know, we met this man named Drake and he had made custom cars. He had competed in car shows. He told us he had won 23 of those car shows. And he was only in his 50s. And um, he said until recently, he felt like he was living the American dream, but he had a heart attack and everything kind of fell, fell apart because after the heart attack, he got blood clots in his arms and his legs, and now he needs a walker to get around, um, and he can't work. He said, the only place I'm under headed at six feet under, and, you know, that really made an impact on us because, you know, he was around our age, and one, one problem kind of de derailed his entire career. Thank you for sharing. Can you tell us about Lana? Why is Lana noteworthy? What is notable about her life and her lived experience? Lana. We met Lana in the women's shelter. And she said that she had three children and they were taken away from her and they were put in foster care. And then her grandparents had to fight, get, or their grandparents had to fight and get custody of them. So her children are living in foster care with her parents. Um, she really is one of these people that um, she has multiple problems, but when we talked to her, her biggest problem was that she felt like she had like PTSD because before she came to the shelter, she had just walked around all night long. And she walked around all night long because she was afraid to stop because if she didn't get assaulted, then she would get arrested because, like I said earlier, it's illegal kind of to do just about anything after dark in Myrtle Beach. Um, so she says she, you know, tries to stay clear of the police. She hides from them if she has to. Um, she believes that the police are like really disrespectful. Um, and she said they don't see us as people. They see us there as homeless and they don't see us as humans. And she was asking us, like, what could have she done? Because she was waiting to find this um, room at this shelter. And once again, it, it made us that are, we have put in place programs to help as much as we can. But like, when it comes to the police, well, the only thing we need to do is just to continue advocating because, you know, this walking around all night, given her PTSD on top of the other problems that she has. Um, and she she just kept saying that she thinks the police are just waiting for people to do something wrong and that it's really affected her mental health. Can you tell us about your findings with respect to 
public restrooms and monitored campsites? There are very few public restrooms um, here, but even throughout the country. Um, you know, in other countries around the world, they have public restrooms. Sometimes you have to order and use them or whatever, but they are available in most other countries. And here, there are not, and definitely not enough. And here, there are a couple, but they're not open after dark. Um, so if somebody needs to use the bathroom here, then they're risking arrest every single time. One solution to the homelessness crisis um, around the country is this idea of monitored campsites or, you know, odd villages where people live in kind of tiny homes and share a communal bathroom and kitchen. Um, these have been shown to be very useful in giving people a place to stop, rest, sleep. It's really difficult to make plans about how you're going to become out if you're exhausted and traumatized all the time. Um, so across the country, places that have put in these monitor campsites, hot villages, um, have shown a lot of success. They've shown a decrease. The, them being monitored decreases the negative interactions between people in the campsites. It, a lot of places will have counselors come in and help with people's um, mental health. And just having a place where somebody can go and at the end of the day and shut the door and have it quiet um, has been shown to be really successful in helping people become rehoused. Additionally, there are other places that have parking lots that are monitored where people can drive that are unhoused but living in their car and drive their car in and you know, park there overnight. A lot of times people in their cars will share, you know, their stories. They will become a community. Um, they'll might put out a picnic table and a, and a grill and they cook food. Um, all of these things that are illegal here but are done in other places. So have shown to be very successful in, you know, reducing the time that somebody is homeless. Um, the more time that goes by that somebody is either outside or in their car or in a shelter, the more likely they are to become chronically unhoused. And that should be something we all worry about. Can you tell us about some of the initiatives that you've started based on your research in particular? Can you tell us about the Giving Wall initiative and the Rolling Forward Bike Program? Sure, I'd be happy to. As Stephanie mentioned earlier, transportation was a significant barrier for many of the folks we spoke to. They talked about having trouble getting work, looking for work, to meet um, social service and medical appointments, even to get to church. And so what we did is we started a bike share program at the men's shelter. We solicited donations of used bikes. And in 2017, we were able to start a program with about 70 bikes that the men could share, um, could use to go to anywhere that they needed to go. And it's been a tremendously successful program. And we have expanded it to other agencies that serve the homeless community. Another thing that we heard throughout our interviews is that folks don't like 
asking for basic hygiene items. They don't want to ask for deodorant, handbots, or incontinence aids. And so we started a law, we're giving law at one of the community kitchens where we hang basic hygiene items on the wall and people can go and take what they need. And that as well has been very successful. People are using it every day. Sometimes we're stocking the walls several times a day. So that has been really exciting. And then one of the initiatives that we have started since the book, we've received a grant from the South Carolina Humanities, and we have created a photo voice project in which we ask people who are experiencing homelessness to take pictures of their day-to-day life. We gave them disposable cameras, asked them to photograph their daily life. Then we developed the photos, met with them again, and asked them to us asked for them to provide us with a quote about their favorite picture. We then created this traveling display with those photos and quotes, and it's been very well received across the community. People have found it very moving and informative. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Can you tell us about subsequent research you've been thinking about doing or new commitments that you've been getting involved in? Sarah just mentioned with a voter voice project, that's been so well received in the community that we have been kind of traveling from organization to organization, um, exhibiting these photos. We also are working on a, I know it's really soon after it was published, but um, we're working on an updated version of this book because since it was published, Myrtle Beach has started um, doing this math redevelopment project where um, they're closing down motels, they're low-income people once used to house themselves, um, they're clearing woods, they're... um, putting in more hostile architecture, such as benches that people can't relax on. And it is causing a lot of um, trauma in the homeless community. So we are planning to update our book with information about the effects of redevelopment on the homeless community. Um, We are also uh, working on starting a community center. And in the community center, which isn't we don't have one in the entire county for adults. Um, it would be a place where people can come in, they can sit down, they can rest, they can um, go to the bathroom, use a washer and dryer and a shower. And we would have organizations come in there and help people, you know, apply for social services, apply for disability, um, and whatever else they might need. So we're working with another organization to put that together. So we, we, we are very As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am Ari Barbalat on the New Books in Sociology podcast. Today, it has been my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Stephanie Southworth and Sarah Brillier. We have been discussing their newly published book, Homelessness in the 21st Century, Living the Impossible American Dream, published in New York by Routledge 2023. Stephanie Southworth is an assistant professor of sociology at Coastal Carolina University. Sarah Brillier 
is professor of sociology at Coastal Carolina University. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. You're welcome. <laughs>